Well, good morning, church. It's wonderful to see you here this morning. I have great news to share with you. God is bringing our new director of children's ministry this summer. Let's hear it. This has been a prayer of ours for a long time. This summer, Melissa Labozo, you'll see her picture up here. Melissa Labozo and her family are making the move from Florida to Southern California this summer. Melissa and her husband, Tony, have three daughters, and they are excited to join our church family this summer. So we cannot thank God enough for this answered prayer. And what this also means is that our very own Linda Merrill will have the opportunity now to return to her uh, position as children's ministry assistant. And we cannot thank Linda enough for faithfully leading our children's ministry for the last year and eight months. We're so thankful to God that he provides in his perfect timing. Well, this morning, the title of my message is Organizing the Church God's Way. We'll be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Organizing the Church God's Way. We're in week 8 of our series on the church, nature, purpose, function. And for those of you who love organization, this message is for you. For those who love to organize your closets, this one's for you. For those who love to organize your pantries, come over to my house and do mine. And for those of you who, well, like other people to organize things, well, I trust you'll be encouraged by this message as well. Because no matter what you think about organization, Organization is important. It's important of, in every part of life. It's important in the church. And so today we're going to talk about the important theme of church organization. But what we're going to find out is this. Along the way, as we talk about this important subject, by the end of this message, my hope is this, that you will understand that this theme of church organization is actually subservient to a greater theme, and we'll see that greater theme unfold. And so I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Acts chapter 6. I'll start in verse 1 here as we get going in this message and unfold this important message. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, it's possible that some of you here this morning in person or maybe watching online, it's possible that some of you were born in a different country than the United States. And it's possible that you left that home country at a young age to grow up elsewhere, maybe here in the United States. So let's say you were born in a different country, and then you moved, let's say, to the United States 
at a young age. And so you were cultured in a different land than where you were born. So if that describes you, and there are some here that this may uh, describe, if that describes you, imagine then at some point later in life, after having been raised in this land, to then go back to the place where you were born to live, let's say, the rest of your life. I would imagine you would return with a lot of challenges. For one, maybe language would be a challenge, right? So let's say you were born in a different country. You came to the United States and you learned your first language was English. Imagine going back to that country. It could be very, very difficult. But even if, let's say, you retained your mother tongue while living in a different country, if you were to go back, you'd still have to readjust to the culture of the land, a culture that is very different than the culture that you are accustomed to, having lived many, many miles away from where you were born. The scene that I described just now, many of you can relate to. But did you know that the scene that I just described is not unique to the 21st century? In fact, this scene was happening in the New Testament in the first century and specifically within the first century church. The author of the book of Acts, Luke, starts out verse 1 with exciting news. He says that the number of disciples was increasing rapidly. In other words, the church was growing and that was great news because that meant that people were coming to faith in Jesus. But you might know this. When there's growth, there's often pains. That's why we have the term growing pains. With growth often comes pains. And the church in the book of Acts was experiencing growing pains. In particular, widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And to be even more specific, there was a group of widows known as the Hellenistic widows who were being neglected. So let's talk a, a bit about that immediate situation. In the midst of all the good that was happening in the church in Jerusalem, a conflict started to arise. A conflict between two groups. The Hellenistic Jews were upset at the Hebraic Jews because the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. I want to take a moment to give you the background information on this. Give you a little history of what was going on. For those of you who loved history class in high school, this is going to be riveting. This is going to be exciting. For those of you who fell asleep in history class, please stay awake. I trust you will, because this is important. This background historical information is critical to understand the nature of this conflict. The Jerusalem church was made up primarily of two groups of people. You had the native Hebrews, or the Hebraic Jews. They were born in Israel, and they were raised in Israel. The other group, a smaller group, 
were the Hellenistic Jews. They were ethnically Jewish, but because their ancestors, because those who went before them had been dispersed into other lands outside of Israel, these Hellenistic Jews who were ethnically Jewish, they grew up in other lands, foreign lands, other than Israel. So you can imagine, at some point, when the Hellenistic Jews made their way back to Israel, somehow they were drawn back to their motherland. And when they joined the church, you could imagine that there were challenges between the native Hebrews and the Hellenistic Jews. After all, they were very different. For one, the Hellenistic Jews, having grown up in other areas of the world at that time, they spoke a different language. The native Hebrews spoke Aramaic, which was the native tongue of Israel. The Hellenistic Jews, having grown up in other areas, they spoke languages like Greek. So when they came back to Israel and when they joined the church, automatically there was a difference. And let's face it, when you don't speak the same language, communication can be very difficult. Even when you speak the same language, clear communication is not always guaranteed, right? I mean, ask any married couple and they'll say amen to that. So automatically, there was conflict, there was tension, there was awkwardness because these two groups did not speak the same language. And the Hellenistic Jews, they brought back with them a different culture, different customs, different clothing styles, different interests, different taste buds. You bring all these differences together in one church and conflict is bound to happen. One commentator says this, when relationships between two people or two groups are strained, it does not take much to create an incident. I'll say that again. When relationships between two people or two groups are strained, it does not take much to create an incident. When there's tension between two people or two groups of people, the slightest thing can set one person off or the other. The slightest thing can set one group off or the other. Even if people share the same things in common, you put two people together for a long time, even if they share the same things in common, they're bound to get on each other's nerves. Has this ever happened to you, right? A loved one, a family member, a friend, a coworker. After a while, that person just gets on your nerves. Guess what? We get on their nerves. It's just natural. We get on one another's nerves. And so, in the church of Jerusalem, tension was mounting. These two groups shared very little in common. Different languages, different cultures, different customs. And so one thing set off one group. The Hellenistic Jews, when they heard that their widows were being overlooked in the daily food distribution, they took it personally. And isn't that true? When you love someone, 
when you like someone, when someone is part of your circle, when someone neglects that person or that group or wrongs that group, you take it personally and you are protective of that group. And so the Hellenistic Jews, they took it personally that their widows were being neglected. So they shared this complaint with the leaders. The church at that time was moving from the honeymoon phase into the post-honeymoon phase. For those of you who are married, do you remember your honeymoon phase, right? You know, what, what's the honeymoon phase like? Well, you're on the white sand beach. You're driving around in a convertible. You're going from one luau to another. There's a reason why they call it a honeymoon phase. It's been said that the, the word honeymoon, it originated in the medieval times. Because back then, when a couple got married, they were given a fermented drink made from honey. And they were asked to drink this for 30 days, which was a moon cycle. And so, the honeymoon is to drink this beverage that makes you happy. <laughs> for 30 days. <laughs> A moon cycle. But eventually, the honeymoon has to come to an end. The couple has to go home to a room full of boxes. All the gifts from the, from the wedding. All the duplicate wedding gifts that they have to return. And all the strange gifts that were never on the registry. And the thought of having to write thank you cards. That alone is a daunting task. Joanne and I, we had like 750 people at our wedding. That's a lot of thank you cards. That's a lot of thank you cards. Every couple returning from their honeymoon, they have to face the real world of marriage and life. And that's why every marriage and family needs structure. There needs to be a system in place. There needs to be organization. And the same holds true for any church. God's family needs organization and structure and systems. And the church at that time, they did a wonderful job. They did a wonderful job providing a system of feeding the needy, the hungry, the poor. So they put this system in place. But imagine this. Imagine feeding just a, a handful of people a couple times a month. That's no problem. You get a rotation of people. It's no problem. We'll take care of it. But then imagine that group growing to dozens of people and having to feed dozens of people every single day. That's what the church faced as it was growing. Now, we're not given the exact reason why these widows were neglected, but I'm pretty certain it was not intentional. It was an oversight on the church. Nevertheless, when it's your people... You take it personally. So the Hellenistic Jews, they went to the leaders and say, why are our widows being neglected? Here's the leader's response. Look at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, 
It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, it's important for us to know what the apostles were not saying here. They were not saying, look, church, we're too important to wait on tables. Church, that's beneath us. Church, find others to take care of that menial task. Nothing could be further from the truth. The apostles, they toiled and labored. They knew what it meant to sweat. They knew what it meant to roll up their sleeves and give every ounce of energy to the church. In fact, in the early stages of the church, I imagine it was the apostles who were setting up all the chairs, who were leading the worship, who were giving the sermons, and then who were mopping the floors afterwards. I imagine that was the case. They were true servants. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 1, take a look at what Paul writes about this understanding of servants. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4.1. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was addressing a conflict in the church. The church at Corinth, there was division. And there was a growing division in the church. And so Paul wrote this letter because, in particular, the Corinthian church, they started to divide into factions based upon their leader of choice. And so some in the church, they said, hey, Paul is our man. We follow Paul. Others, hey, Apollos, he's more charismatic than Paul. Apollos has a better personality. We're following Apollos. And then still others. Peter. Now, there's a man of conviction. I'm going to follow Peter. And so you had groups in the church. Well, I'm only going to show up to church when Paul's preaching or Apollos or Peter. So you had this growing faction in the church at Corinth. And so Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're to regard all of us as servants. Now, here's what's interesting about that word servant. In the English, it's not apparent. Okay, because when we say leaders are servants of God, that doesn't sound too interesting. But in the Greek language, there are a couple different words for servant. We don't know it just looking at the English. But in Acts 6, when the apostles said, Find others to wait on tables. The term table waiter is a specific word that we translate servant. It's the word diakonos, as you see up here. The word diakonos means servant, table waiter, deacon. This is the Greek word used in Acts 6, and it refers to those specifically who were to wait on tables. A deacon is literally a table waiter. 
So in Acts 6, what we have is the beginnings of the office known as the office of deacon or deaconess. Waiting on tables is hard work. Who here has ever worked in the food service industry of any kind? Can I see your hands? A lot of us. A lot of us. It's tough work, isn't it? It is laboring work. It is tiring work. If you were working in a restaurant, it is long hours. You're on your feet all day and all night. If you were a server, you're carrying heavy trays and you're dealing with rude customers. It is tough work. Last week, I shared with you that years ago, I had a job as a Domino's pizza delivery driver. It was a wonderful, meaningful, memorable job. But before that job, when I was in high school, my first ever job was that as a busboy slash dishwasher. Okay, I wasn't just a busboy, and I wasn't just a dishwasher. I was both. I was a busboy slash dishwasher. But the thing is this, that meant that I was one step lower than a diakonos. <laughs> See, because a diakonos is a table waiter, a server. They made the big tips. I, I bust the tables, took the dishes to the back, and washed the dirty dishes. I was a lowly busboy dishwasher. I will say, though, that one perk that I had was that every so often, when the employee who was in charge of making all the hot fudge sundaes, when they messed up an order, like, for example, let's say a customer ordered a hot fudge sundae with no nuts on it. But if the worker accidentally put nuts on a hot fudge sundae, they can't serve that to the customer. What if they have a peanut allergy, right? And they can't pick it off with their fingers, so they will send that mistake to the back. And so they sent it to me. <laughs> now, why would anybody let a perfectly good dessert go to waste? So there I was working at Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor Shop a full-scale restaurant serving hamburgers and sandwiches and hot fudge sundaes. There I was on Friday nights at midnight, washing and then eating. <laughs> washing and eating. But still, I was below a diakonos. What's interesting is, in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul says, you are to regard us as servants, he doesn't use the word diakonos. He uses a different Greek word. It's the word hyperetos. And hyperetos referred to an under rower. In the Roman Empire, the lowliest of people were chained to rowing benches on the bottom tier of a Roman warship. And they were forced to row. So Paul says to the church of Corinth, who's dividing into factions, Apollos, Peter, and I, we are but under rowers, servants of Christ. So the apostles... They did not consider themselves too important to do 
table set up, clean up. They did it all in the early stages. But they knew that they could not continue at that pace, nor was it good for the health of the church for them to do it all. So the apostles instructed the church to select seven men with good reputations, spirit-filled lives, and wisdom to oversee the distribution of the daily provisions. And this became known as the office of deacon or deaconess. A few weeks ago in our message about the responsibilities of church leaders, we said that our elders, they lead us spiritually. They lead and feed. They watch and warn. They tend and mend. Our nine elders, they are servants of Christ. In fact, down the line, you see every one of them serving all throughout our church. In fact, they're the first ones to pick up a broom, pick up a mop, put up a chair or a table. So they lead. They lead us by example. But they cannot do it all. And that's why we have the office of deacon or deaconess. Here at our church, we have a variety of offices of deacon or deaconess. Our deaconess of care and concern is Sue Magus. Hi, Sue. Our deaconess of fellowship is Janet Clark. Hi, Janet. Our deaconess of finance is Yin Suzuki. Hi, Yin. Our deacon and deaconess, husband and wife duo of missions is Rob and Linda Rogus. Hi, Rob. These faithful servants, they serve our church in tangible ways, and they serve on a two-year term. They're in the middle of their two-year term. Our church clerk serves for a period of one year. Our current church clerk is Lilia Lu Fong. Come August, she will complete her term, and Sue Meister will step in as our church clerk in August. And this year, we're introducing a new deacon office, and that is the deacon of campus safety. And Darren Mastin will serve for two years. These men and women, they serve our church in very tangible ways. And I look out here, and so many of you serve our church in so many wonderful ways. And we appreciate your heart for Jesus and your heart for our church. I want to go back and now... Read the names of the seven servants who were chosen. So let's go back to Acts 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. Acts 6. Starting in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, what's important to know about these men is the fact that they were all Hellenistic Jews, with the exception of Nicholas. He was not ethnically Jewish. He was Greek, but he converted to Judaism and then eventually gave his life to Christ. So keep this in mind. 
all seven of these men were either Hellenistic Jews or Greek. It's very important. And if you're paying close attention to these names, you'll notice all the names, in fact, are Greek. Right? Because these Hellenistic Jews, they grew up outside of Israel. So maybe, perhaps some of you who were born in different countries, maybe when you came to the United States, you were given an American name. It's very possible. And so these men, when they were raised in lands other than Israel, they were given those names, Greek names. And so they came back into the church of their motherland. Why is this important? It's important because the apostles were given wisdom by God to make sure that the widows would be taken care of. And who better to take care of the Hellenistic widows than the Hellenistic Jews? You see, because the leaders of the church recognized, you know what? We don't want to make the same mistake again. So we're going to make sure that we choose wise people to make sure that their widows are taken care of. Leaders tend and they mend. They were mending a conflict. And so there was an immediate reason to select these Hellenistic Jews to alleviate the conflict. But there's an even greater reason, and we cannot miss this. And the greater reason is this. God was preparing the church at Jerusalem to expand and grow beyond itself. God was preparing the church at Jerusalem to grow and expand beyond itself. And this is what happened. Look at verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And the growth did not stop at Jerusalem. It increased and continued to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to Diamond Bar, and then to the end of the earth, as Acts 1.8 said it would. You see, these seven men with Greek names, they had the ability to speak a language other than Aramaic. And that was strategic on God's part. And so when the Hellenistic Jews joined the church of Jerusalem and they brought with them a different language, it provided the opportunity for the church to grow beyond Jerusalem. Do you see the strategy there that God used? It is not by accident. Did you know that God often takes a conflict or a tension and he uses it for good? As terrible as that conflict might be, as terrible as that tension might be, God has a way of taking the worst conflict and using it for good. A few minutes ago, we talked about 
the very early stages of the Jerusalem church. Now, in fact, when the church was experiencing its honeymoon phase, what was happening was there was harmony. There was a tight-knit community. But here's the thing, and you might know this. The smaller the group and the more homogenous the group, the easier it is to experience harmony. Right? The smaller the group and the more homogenous a group, the easier it is to experience harmony. That's only natural. If everyone looks the same and speaks the same and dresses the same and eats the same, it's easier to get along. But if that were God's plan for the church at Jerusalem, it would never have advanced beyond Jerusalem. And we would not be here today. I thank God for our church family. I thank God because no matter who steps foot through these doors, church, you are so quick to greet them and make them feel welcome. I hear that time and time again from first-time guests. Church, I appreciate our church family. You are a warm and welcoming church. And some of you in our church, you've been blessed by God with a special ability to recognize first-time guests. Not everyone here has that ability. It's a special gift that God's given to certain individuals in our church. And those individuals have this knack of spotting an unfamiliar face and going to that person and introducing themselves. I appreciate you. It's a gift. Keep up the great work. It's contagious. Over the years, we've seen God weave a beautiful tapestry here at Ephraim Church, a wonderful blend of cultures and customs and languages. Do you know how many languages are represented just in our church alone? Do you know how many? I don't know. <laughs> there are too many. There are too many. But I'll tell you this much. After our 9 o'clock service, a group of people came up to me and we stood here for several minutes talking. And in that circle alone, in that small circle alone, there were three languages. In that small circle alone. So I look out here. God has blessed our church with many cultures and customs and, yes, languages. And that began at the Jerusalem church in the first century. The more diverse a group, the larger the group, the more challenging it is to live in harmony. But that's why I'm so thankful for our church. Church, I believe that you get it. I believe you get it. You know, not every church 
uh, looks like our church. It's wonderful. Now, there are many parts of the world, you know, the country, where maybe the population is much more homogenous, so you have a very homogenous church. Here in Southern California, but even in Southern California with such diversity, not every church is very multi-ethnic and cultural. So church, this is a wonderful, wonderful scene that God is weaving together. And so as we think about what God is doing, we can look back to the church at Jerusalem. And we're just living out what God called the church at Jerusalem to do. You may share very little in common with the people in the row in front of you or behind you. But we share the greatest common thread, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen. And with Jesus Christ as our common bond, anything is possible in his church. Anything is possible. 